Now we finished up 1 John, took forever, but we finally got through that. And now we're in between. I'm looking at some things we're going to do for, for a chunk of the summer. But in the meantime, I, I love this is a time too that I love because I can hit on things that I feel like I would like to hit on, but uh, you know they don't always tie in with some big overarching thing. And so today I want to talk about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I want to talk about that because this is a parable oftentimes that is misunderstood, it's misinterpreted, we're not sure what to do with it oftentimes, and what it's getting, but it gets to the heart of some important things. And, and, and the most important thing is because in that whole passage, in that, in that whole section, Jesus is talking about money, and he's talking about possessions. And so he's giving people what he figures is, most, is, is, is very important. And, and it's, it's as if you could say Jesus is pointing to what, in a sense, uh, I heard a guy say this, what true north really is. So in the spirit of that, if you think you have an idea, which way do you think north is right now? Anybody want to point? Anybody feel up to pointing which way is which way is north well no i mean real physical actual magnetic north we have some spiritual people that are going that's no, that's good all right we have some people yes that's right north is this way north is this way now i have this innate sense of direction so it's not hard for me at any given time to point plus i have a compass right here on my cell phone that tells me north is that way so i'm pretty sure of that all right so that's, Jesus is going to talk to us. He's going to say, what is true north? So in the middle of this passage, just before he gets to this parable, he says this, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now this is an interesting, uh, to me, this is an interesting little aside here about what the Pharisees do. Because what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, okay, here's true north. Here's what's actually the most important thing that we need to know about. Now, we oftentimes can, can be people who think we've figured out what's most important. We oftentimes can start to think we know what's best. How do we do that? Well, whenever you're anxious about something, when you're, when you're struggling with anxiety, what are you doing? You're actually saying, God, I'm not sure if I trust you, so I need to work on this. I need to be the one that tries to figure this out. And, and we do that in so many, when we worry about things, tons of different ways. And I can do that a lot. I, I can find myself slipping into that, and I have to, I have to kind of call myself back and say, God, say, Bob, what's important here? Think about what God says in this situation. And so Jesus is saying this. You can't serve two masters. Here's what true north is. And the religious leaders, it says they sneer at him. Now, I have a book. I was bringing up books. I have a book by a guy named Ken Bailey. Uh, he is a great um, 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 historian, and, and, and he writes a lot on culture. He spent 30 years, 35 years in the Middle East, and then came back. And, and he, he, he became a professor, so he wrote a book on all this stuff he observed in the Near East and how it correlates with the Bible, because so many of the customs that were going on in Jesus' time are still going on in many, in, many parts, uh, in many parts of the Near East. And so he wrote this, and one of the things he said was, this is something that happens even today, all right? It's a gesture of disdain, to someone. Uh, he's, and and I, I'm reading from what he wrote. He says, it involves a slight tilt of the, of the head and a raising of the eyebrows to indicate condescension and re rejection. It's one of these things, you know, it's kind of like this. Kind of, oh boy, you know, really. And, and, and that's what they do. Why do they do that? They, they do it to humiliate. 
This is done by people who think they're better than others. They're thinking, I don't need to listen to this. This is stupid. Now, before we get too angry and holier than thou with these people, we do this too. It's very easy for us to do. I see it all the time. You know, sometimes um, um, there's someone who you think talks too much, and, and, and they start into a story or something like that, a reminiscence, and you've heard it before, right? And you just kind of go, oh, boy, there he goes. See, I see that all the time. My family does that to me. Sometimes you guys do that to me. Look, I know I have a limited amount of stories in my life, and sometimes they get repeated. And I'll know sometimes when I'm repeating one, even if I don't remember that I've repeated, said it before, because some of you go, oh, boy, like that. A little roll of the eyes, a little tilt of the head, a little bit of a sneer. I see it. Don't, don't think you don't, I don't. I don't see it. But I'm not angry. I just want to say that. I'm not angry a little. But Jesus here, he's not easily intimidated. He's just, he's going to tell this story. He knows what they're doing. And so let's read this story. It's on your sheet there. So let's read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Here it goes. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. And now, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. <clears throat> and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not, so, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So we have this story, and it starts off in this very first, the very first verse of this, this parable. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. And he doesn't just waste details. So, so details mean something. He's a rich man dressed in purple. Why is this guy dressed in purple every day? Because in the ancient world, purple was the most expensive kind of fabric. Only the very wealthy could afford to have purple fabric, purple anything with purple in it. And usually only a little bit. To be very wealthy is meant you could have enough for every day. And so the idea is Jesus wants everyone to understand this guy has money, all right? He has money. So every day he goes to his closet. What will I wear today? I'll wear purple. And so he, he's getting that gratification of people looking to him and seeing, wow, that guy's rich. Man, aren't you glad we're not like that anymore? Aren't you glad that we don't look and say, wow, look at that guy's car. Man. That's cool. He's rich. Look at that guy's house. Look at, the, look at their clothes. Look at her clothes. Look at, 
We're, we're so far past that. It's just a, it's a fortunate thing for us, right? So Jesus is saying, okay, this guy's wealthy. He's painting this picture. And then he puts a little humor in. If you ever, someone ever argues with that. Jesus is constantly, he says, dressed in purple. And then he says, and fine linen. Now that fine linen is, it refers to a, a, a high quality, kind of an Egyptian cotton that was used in those days for the undergarments that went under the outer clothing. So what Jesus is saying is he even had expensive BVDs. That's what he's saying. Expensive Hanes. He wore the best Hanes could make. That's, that's what he's saying. He wants them to understand he's, ex, it's, he's got it everything, even the things you don't see. Now, this doesn't mean it's wrong to love fashion, all right? It doesn't mean, you know, some people have a gift for it. Some people have an eye for it, and, and, and some of us don't. I mean, I, sometimes I'll, I'll put on some clothes in the morning, and as I'm as I'm leaving, my wife will say, oh, were you, were you planning on wearing that today? And, and uh, I know what that means. You know, I'd say, well, I kind of was. That's why I put it on. But now that you've said that, I have decided this is not what I'm going out this door dressed in. I'm immediately going to go back and change. Do you have any ideas? So I she helps me because I don't have that gift. It just doesn't, I just don't understand that stuff. And I typically will go out when my wife would go away. When our kids were little, people would comment. <laughs> One time, my daughter, Holly, I let her wear overalls to church. She wanted to wear overalls to church. And she said, Daddy, I want to dress myself. And I said, fine, you can dress yourself. You're, you're big, you're 18, you can do that. And um, she put them on backwards and had her sister Reagan snap the straps in the back where the bib, bib was so that she had her overalls on backwards. And I didn't notice. So we went off to church, and the church that we attended at that time was into dressing up more than we are. And all I got was people saying, your wife's out of town, isn't she? And I'd be like, huh, yeah. She is. What clued you in? Oh, nothing. You know, that's, I just don't have a clue for that stuff. Jesus is emphasizing something here. This guy's rich. I mean, he's rich all the way down to, to his underwear. He's rich. All right? Now, if you enjoy that kind of stuff, don't, I don't, we don't want you to feel guilty. If you like dressing up, that's great. We're not going to be legalistic about this. All we want to do in this story is say, okay, what's true north for us with our money? What is Jesus trying to tell us? And then he says, he uh, dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now he's cluing us into something there. Um, he's saying he, this guy did, everything was the best for him. Everything was the best. He was very rich. So undoubtedly he had servants. And every day he lived the best. Now, for a Jew, there's immediately an issue that comes up. And that is this. Sabbath. You don't make your servants serve you on Sabbath because that's the rest day for all of God's creation. And a rich man who lives in luxury every day is being served every day. And so for a Jew, it's like this man doesn't care. This is not important to him. It's, it's, this, is a, this is a condemnation that Jesus is giving because a Jew would pick up on that. His wealth has inhibited his relationship with God. His wealth is detrimental to his relationship with God. And we have to stop and consider that. 
Because, you know, I, it's easy to connect the dots, folks. We're the richest people in the world. Two-thirds of the world lives considerably below how we live. Even the poorest people in our country live better than most of the world. And his wealth inhibited his relationship with God. We have to be careful about that. Jesus is warning us. Then he moves. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. All right? Just a, 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 a quick thing here. It's interesting here. This is this, just theologians talk about this. This is the only parable where a person is named. A person is given a name. You know, you, the, 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 uh, the prodigal son, we know the younger son, the older son, the father. All, you think all those parables, nothing. This one, it's named. And I think what Jesus is doing is Jesus is pointing to the fact that the poorest of the poor, he knows his name. He's naming him. So, um, in this situation, the one person ever named is a homeless, diseased, penniless beggar. His name is Lazarus, which interestingly, his name is the Hebrew word for the one God helps. The one that God helps. Isn't that weird? Jesus named that guy in this parable, the one that God helps. It's kind of ironic, right? Because in that day, they thought the rich man is the one that God helped. People thought if you're rich, it's because God has do had done that for you. So you were more spiritual than other people. And if you're poor, if you're diseased, if you're straight, it's because, because you, there's something wrong with you. You deserve it. And Jesus lies at the gate of this rich man. He looks like the one that God forgot, not the one that God helps, if you look at this story. If you just read the first part. And so every day, Lazarus sees the important people going in and out of this wealthy man's home. He smells the food. He sees the clothing. And it says he longs to be fed even from the scraps, even from the stuff that gets tossed in the trash. I'll, just even your garbage I'd like to eat, he's saying. And every day the rich man would come out of his house and he'd walk past Lazarus and he'd keep right on going. Now, did Lazarus just become so much a part of the scenery that he just, he didn't even know about him? He just ignored him? What was he thinking? I don't know. I don't know. But I bet part of what he's thinking is, I deserve my wealth, I earned it. My hard work. These people don't work as hard as I do, so they didn't earn it. So why should I give my stuff away? And in, that, in, that, in, in those days, in that, there was lots of beggars. There were lots of people pestering for money, asking, so that people just learned to ignore them. And Lazarus just became a part of the scenery, just a part of his world, didn't pay attention, just didn't, kept on walking by. Didn't ask God, what is true north with my money? Interestingly, it says, at his gate was laid a beggar. So someone brings Lazarus there. Lazarus has friends, and they bring him there. You know, he's, he's disabled. This is incredibly traumatic. And they would bring him there, and they lay him at the gate. And they would, you know, undoubtedly hope, maybe, maybe today... Maybe today someone will give him something. Maybe today someone will help him. Maybe today that rich man, his heart will be moved and he'll do something for Lazarus, do something for our friend. And they'd come in the evening and they'd grab Lazarus up and they'd take him home. And in the morning, pick him up and think, okay, maybe 
today, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next. It just keeps going on. And Jesus says, even the dogs came and licked his sores, which sounds kind of gross. And you wonder why, why, Jesus, why'd you put that in the story? Because in those days, dogs were scavengers. Nobody had dogs for pets. It it wasn't a common thing. They were regarded as unclean. Most of the mentions of dogs in the Bible are very negative. But even those dogs were showing more compassion for this man created in the image of God than another human being was. Even the dogs were showing him a compassion that humans weren't. Now, whenever I teach this, people sometimes ask me, why dogs? Why does Jesus mention dogs? Why not cats? And it's because Jesus didn't like cats. And... um, (laughs) That's the Bible. Don't argue with me over that. I don't hate cats. I'm just not fond of them. And obviously Jesus was not either. So that's good. Okay. So we have this rich man. We have this poor man. He's laying at his, his gate. And Lazarus has these friends. They pick him up. And even the dogs will lick his womb. Even the dogs, these unclean dogs, are more, have more compassion for this man. And one day, one day, this rich man gets up, he gets dressed in his fine linen and his purple, and he walks out the gate, and Lazarus is not there. He's not there. I always wonder, did he notice? Did he notice that the scenery had changed? Or did he just go right by like every other day, ignoring the scenery, ignoring the circumstances around him? The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, I put in there uh, bosom. And, and the reason is because uh, the, the word literally means the chest. Like, that, that, that's what it means. So the King James gets it right in that, where it says bosom and side is, is more of trying to, to, to make it understandable to us, because we wouldn't necessarily say it that way in this day. But it is a term that's used at, at a feast, all right? And, and at a feast, we have to understand culturally how people feasted, how people ate. They didn't sit in chairs at tables. That was, that was not done. It was a very low table, like this high, and you would lay on your left side because your left hand is your unclean hand, and you would eat with your right hand so that people were kind of all looking in the one direction, which I imagine sometimes made it difficult for conversation. But here's a picture this is a drawing, and this is uh, a guy that was uh, drawing the Lord's Supper, but this is, this is very accurate. If you notice, every person in there is laying on their left side, right? And so that as you go around, the ones on the left side of the picture, they're the ones that have the hardest time looking. And so sometimes if you're laying there and you're talking, someone's talking to you, you lay back to here, and what do you do? You touch the chest of the person who's right behind you. Their bosom. Now, just for at, at, the, uh, at the Lord's Supper, at the, at the Last Supper, the guest of honor, the person who's, who, who's most important, and that would be Jesus, would have the, the two other most important people on either side. So, and, and Scripture tells us that John was the one who laid back on Jesus' chest to talk to him. It's, it says that. And the other person right behind Jesus at the other guest of honor was Judas. What an interesting thing, because what happened, we know they would bring a, a dish for sopping bread, one bowl for every three people. 
And Jesus says, they say, who betray you? The one who dips the bowl with me. So that's Judas. I think that's amazing. Jesus put Judas in a position of honor when he knew Judas was going to betray him. That's incredible love. That's incredible love. I mean, it's almost like Jesus saying, Judas, you got one more chance. Don't do it. And I don't know if that's what Jesus is thinking or if he's just showing his love for him. I, I don't know. But John and Judas were in the two positions. So Abraham is, is the head of the feast. He's the most important person there. So the second most important person there is going to be the person directly in front of Abraham who has to lean back to talk to him, lean onto his bosom. So when it says, when it says here that he was carried him to Abraham's bosom, he was placed in the position of honor with the, the head of the feast. This man who was nothing in this world took the position of, of, of greatness in this feast. That's how God turns everything upside down. That's how God turns the world topsy-turvy. Topsy and so Abraham is like the host of the party, and Lazarus is like the guest of honor seated there. Have you ever heard of the old, old spiritual rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham? That's where this comes from. You know who's saying it? Slaves. This is a spiritual that slaves sang. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. And what are they saying? They're saying there's coming a day when the roles are going to reverse. And so we have, we have historically, sometimes slave owners would come out into the field and they would hear them singing as they worked, rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. And they'd say, shut up, stop them. Because they knew what that meant too. That's a dangerous song. That's a dangerous thing for a slave to sing. There's going to be a day I'm the guest of honor right next to Abraham. And think of the implication for the slave owner. You, by the way. Right? You get that? Okay, good. They did too. They did too. They got that too. All right? So the rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. All right? Now, um, I, I just want to pause here and be really clear. This is a parable. One of the keys in parables is you don't try to get too much. It's got a main point that it's really trying to get across. It's got details that help that main point. And so what I want to say is this, that, that, that this is clearly saying that there, there is an afterlife, there's a hell, there's a heaven. We don't want to go too far in this because it's not saying, because it's a parable, it's not saying there's this split screen vision that everybody's going to be able to see each other. It's not saying that. This is just a part of the parable. It's like, it's like with some of the uh, parables about the kingdom of God. You remember the parable about the kingdom of God where the guy finds a treasure in someone else's field? And what does he do? He covers the treasure back up, which seems pretty sneaky to me. I don't know. He covers the treasure back up, and then he goes and says, hey, I'm interested in your field. I would like to buy your field. And he negotiates a price for the field, and he gets the treasure. And what is Jesus saying? The kingdom of God is like this treasure that you'll do anything for. That's the point. It's not a detailed explanation of real estate acquisition and how we should go about it. 
Okay, it's not saying that. It's simply saying, wow, great treasure. How can I get it? I'll do anything for it. Cover it up, go, be a little sneaky, boom, boom. He's not endorsing the methods. He's endorsing the motive, all right? Same thing here, all right? Don't try to read too much in it. This, this isn't telling us about the temperature of one versus the other. It's not telling us that kind of stuff. It's simply telling us that there is this separation, in Jesus' time, there were tons of stories. They, we call them that too, though, now that I think about it. They're called pearly gate stories, right? And they, and they would be stories that would deal with something like this. They were common stories all around, and we, and we have them too. I mean, you know, like in our day, if somebody's going to do a, a, a cartoonist is going to draw a picture of getting into heaven, what are they going to draw? They're going to draw these pearly gates, and they're going to draw some clouds, and who's always at the pearly gates? Peter, right? Peter's always at the pearly gates. None of that's biblical. It's just popular. And so we use it sometimes. People talk about it. People make jokes about it. And they had that back then. So the other day I'm reading. And there's three guys that die and they go to heaven. And they're met at the pearly gates by Peter. One was a doctor, one was a teacher, and one was the head of an insurance company. You guys know this story? I don't know if you know this one. You can kind of see it coming already, can't you? It's always in threes. Right? So Peter goes to the first guy, what'd you do on earth to the doctor? And he says, well, I healed the sick. When they had no money, I'd do it for no charge. Peter says, all right, you can go in. He goes to the second guy, what did you do? I was a teacher. I helped people. I helped under-resourced people how to learn, how to read, how to write. All right, you can go in. He says to the third guy, what did you do? I ran a large health insurance company. You can go in, but just for two days. I just thought that was okay. Having heard that many times, I thought that would... No, that's one I don't ever want to say again. All right? So Jesus is in the middle of a pearly gate story. This is what he's doing. They're familiar with this. This is not unusual for them. All right? He's, he's, he's not talking about how high the thermostat's set. He's, he's, not, he's saying there's going to be a judgment. And there's a day coming. And the Bible says, I mean, the Bible says heaven is real. It, uses, it can use spiritual metaphors. It can use different types of language for it. But heaven is real. And the Bible says there is a hell. This is real. All right, I would be deficient in my responsibility as a person who's trying to faithfully teach the word of God to skip over that. Because we have here, there is a hell. It's life apart from God. It, it, it's something that Jesus says, this is a real thing that happens. And hell is not God's will for any human being. And he has made a way I just want to mention, he's made a way at great cost to be set right with this holy God through forgiveness and grace and have this life that is available to us now through Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be for us. And, and you can receive that spiritual gift. If you never have, you could receive it right now on your own, in your heart, praying to God. But he's saying there is this celebration going on here and there is separation going on here. And the rich guy is seeing this. He's seeing who the guest of honor is. And probably to his surprise, it's not him. And probably to the surprise of Jesus' listeners, it's not him. Because they really believed that rich people were rich because they were special to God. He specially blessed them. They were above us. They were holier than us. And so now we have this interesting thing. This rich man is seeing this. He sees Lazarus. He sees Abraham. How's he going to react? How will he react to the spiritual reality that is now revealed to his life? How will he react when he realizes he's wasted his life? How will he realize that how much stuff and money he wasted upon himself? 
Will he apologize to Lazarus? Will he confess his greed, his inhumanity? And they're waiting for this. This is, a, this is an interesting story. And so they're waiting for Jesus. Ah, what's going to happen here? And so we have it. Jesus says, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. Now, I want to tell you, Jesus' listeners would be stunned by this on a number of levels. But first of all, there's no expression of remorse here. He's seen this incredible truth now. There's no repentance. There's, 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 there's no, no begging of Lazarus for forgiveness. But you know what's interesting? He does recognize Lazarus, doesn't he? He pronounces his name. He says, Father Abraham, pretty much send Lazarus. Now, that's an interesting thing. So he did know who Lazarus was. He was conscious of who Lazarus was. He's very conscious that here is that man that I ignored for all those years. And what does he say? Well, Abraham, to a Jew, is a high-status guy. And so what is he going to do? Abraham is in the position to do something. He's the important guy. And so the rich guy says to him, Father Abraham. Now, what is he doing? Father Abraham. He's claiming status. Hey, hey, Father Abraham. Remember, we're, we're both Jews. I'm a family member. I'm a son of Israel. You know, and, and, and in the East, the patriarch, the head of the family, would be expected to come to the to service of a family member in need. And so the rich man's thinking, hey, I'm entitled to this. Father Abraham, right? Okay, I'm entitled to this. Father Abraham basically he's saying now that Lazarus is on his feet and he looks pretty well, he might as well be put to some use. I mean, he's nothing more than a servant, right? This man is used to people serving him. And so what does he do? He doesn't ask Lazarus for help. He says, Father Abraham, send your man. Send that servant. I'd like a little service. I'm acutely aware of my pain and I don't like it. Send your man to fetch some water. Now, if Lazarus is angry, we get no clue of that. But, I mean, I can't help but think, I just would think Lazarus would be like, yeah, send you get to some water. You're out of your purple turban mind if you think I'm going to bring you water, you low life, you despicable. You know, I just think that's, but that's the human side of me reacting. Lazarus now is with Abraham, so I'm sure he's a forgiving person. But it's amazing. The, the rich man hasn't changed. Think of that. He hasn't changed. I'm in some pain. Send him. I need a servant to serve me. And Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, that those, this is so, and that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So Lazarus, we get a clue here. Lazarus, instead of saying, oh, oh, you know my name now? You know who I am? I'm so ticked. He says, those who want to go from here to you. 
So evidently, Lazarus has said, Abraham, I'll go. I'll go. I'll do it. And he says, no, you can't. You can't. He uses the word son. There's two words for son in the Greek. One is more distant and kind of neutral. One is, is much more tender. And here he's using the very tender one. He's saying, look, I, my heart's breaking over this. My heart is breaking over this. We see that with Abraham. We see this all the time with Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler? And when the rich young ruler finally turned and left, it, 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 made, it devastated Jesus. Jesus wanted to see him turn. When Jesus goes and he weeps over, over the city of Jerusalem after the, after the triumphant uh, entry, he goes up and he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. He says, like a mother, like a mother hen, I wanted to gather you under my wings. I wanted to give you protection. I wanted to give you love. I wanted to give you comfort. And you've rejected me. You've, they rejected him because they, they asked him to be what he wasn't going to be. And so he says, my son, my boy, my child, remember. Think of how often time, how often the Bible says remember. Remember is a repent word. Remember when you served and were faithful. Remember and bring that back. God is always calling Israel in that way. And he says, remember, though, interestingly, remember in your lifetime you received good things. Not you earned good things. Not you merited good things. Remember, he didn't say remember all your hard work and your diligent. You were such a self-made millionaire and you, and you made it all. No, he's saying you received it. This is good for us to remember, right? Because as, as, we, as we receive things, we have this innate sense of saying, it's mine. I did it. Look what I've done. I've told you, it's, here's one of those stories I say all the time. Moses leading the people through um, the children of Israel, and they go through these tests. And he tells them finally, there's a test that's coming. You'll always, you're going to fail it. You'll always fail. And they know we won't fail it. And he says, you're going to be in a land where you didn't plant the grapes. You didn't plant the figs. You didn't build the houses. You're going to be in cities that you didn't build. And after a while, you're going to go, look what my hands have done. Look what I've done. You're going to take credit for my blessings, God says. You're going to fail at that. And they're like, no, we won't. And we do the same thing. We take credit. This is my money. This is my house. This is my family. This is my car. This is my church. Pastors can do it too. This is mine. I did it. I try to fight that because I know what a temptation it is people say sometimes, well, how did you get to where you're at? And I said, God did it. God did it. Don't look to me for leadership styles. I'm a terrible leader. But God did it. And he's saying to me, he says, you receive these things. Money will try to convince me that I am more superior or I'm more entitled to what I have than people who don't have what I have. I, I'm more entitled than they are. I'm superior to them. Money will try to make you less desperate for God. Money will try to make me forget that I'm a sinner saved by grace and that I, didn't, I don't deserve every gift that he's given me. All the things he's given you. My body, my mind, my IQ, my education, my experience, all of that is from God. I didn't earn it. 
because somehow we'll get this idea that I have what's coming to me and I'll just let the rest of the, rest of the, rest of the world, I don't care. I don't care about them. It's interesting, in the last 100 years, I was reading a guy and he was saying in the last 100 years, 100 years ago, 80% of the followers of Jesus Christ lived in Europe and the United States of America. In 100 years today, about 75 to 80% of the followers of Jesus Christ live in the southern hemisphere, South America, Africa, and in the east. And this is what he says. Christianity is flourishing wonderfully among the poor and among the persecuted, but it is atrophying among the rich and the secure. The rich man, he was rich and secure, and he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember what God has done for him. He thinks it's his. He doesn't repent. And so it's interesting because he has one more errand that he wants to send Lazarus on. He doesn't get it. He's like, hey, send your man down. No, no, that's not happening. Even if he wants to, it's not happening. Okay, well then send him here. He says, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have, the Mo- they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay? So he's saying to him here, He's telling this story. Remember this. What is the context? He's telling the stories to, to the Pharisees who loved money and wouldn't listen to him, to Jesus. And Jesus gave them signs. And what's coming? The most dramatic sign of all. He's going to raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. And it won't affect them. It won't affect them. Now, we tend to think, if I saw that, man, I'd be all on board with Jesus. But you know what? I find, I think that way sometimes, and then I think about, I stop and think, what are the things God has done for me in, in, in my life? He's done this, and he's done this, and I can look back and see ways where he miraculously provided, ways where he worked, I never saw it coming. Things he did, I didn't even think to ask for, and he still did them. And yet, I can still worry and be anxious that God's going to come through. I can still struggle. Why? Because those things, in spite of how great they all are, if I don't remember them, if I don't constantly rehearse them, they don't do anything for me. And, and people saw Jesus rise from the dead. I love this in, in our scriptures because it's, because it's so truthful. They saw Jesus. He walked in the room. He talked to them. He left. And it says, and some still doubted. And some still doubted. Why? Because it's it's, this, is, this is what we are. We're, we're this way as human beings. We tend, sin has corrupted us, and we tend to be forgetful, and we tend to not remember. And so Jesus is telling this story to them, and he's saying, look, money will corrupt you. The love of money can corrupt you. And Jesus came to fix that. He says, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to provide, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to be good in rich deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life which is truly life. He's saying, what, what is he saying there? He's saying riches, money promises us life and it's a false promise. It's an empty promise. And God says, I've got the life you need. This is not gonna do it. Don't put your hope in that. I've got the life. 
that you're going to Money will tell you that if you grab onto money, it will give you the life that is truly life, and it won't. Only Jesus can do that. And if you grab a hold of Jesus, then money becomes something to share. And you don't get less life, you get more life. And so it's up to us. Find ways to love. Find ways to serve. Find ways to be involved in what God is doing. Because he's telling us what we do on this earth matters greatly. And it's because the point is not, do you believe in God? The point is, do you believe God? Because he's told us what he says is the truth. And the question is, will we believe it?